You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Mormon teaching tested by the Bible. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by ChristadelphianVideo.org. The Mormon religion is examined in this episode, beginning with the questionable and false origins of the sect, based on man-made claims. Now, the inconsistencies and reversal of doctrine show that they are man-made. By examining the Bible teaching, Mormons' more prominent doctrines are easily refuted by the Bible. Mormon teaching tested by the Bible. And this is a topic which has implications for all of us. Whether we are current believers of Mormon teaching or even of the Bible, as we will hopefully see the importance of truth in our own lives. And I'd like to be clear from the outset this evening that this evening's address is is not an attack on Mormons, but rather an investigation of some of their common beliefs and how they compare to the yardstick that we'll be using. And that is the yardstick of the Bible. So to cover this evening's topic, we'll be looking at the following areas. Firstly, I believe it'll be worthwhile from the outset for us to establish why this topic matters at all. Why does it matter what you believe? Why is it important from the Bible's perspective to have truth? Once we have that established, we'll turn our attention to who the Mormons are and to the beliefs and the teachings of the Mormons, or as you may know them, the Latter-day Saints. We'll then compare this to the Bible, and we'll see how the two of them truly compare so that we can ascertain truth. And finally, we'll conclude with what this means for us, what this means for you and what this means for myself as we go forward from here and what it means for our own beliefs and the way that we live. So first of all, why is this topic of testing Mormon teaching by the Bible important? Why does it matter from the Bible's perspective what you believe? And really, boiled down, it comes down to one word, and that is truth. It matters what you believe. It matters that you have the truth in the sight of God. And in this age, you may be well familiar with phrases or concepts such as your truth. And this is one definition of your truth found online. To live in your truth simply means to live as your most authentic self, doing things daily with happiness and joy, living as true to yourself as possible. And while upon the surface this may sound both pleasant and plausible, underneath it has some fundamental issues. Essentially, it is a belief that there is not one absolute truth, and that rather there are many truths which are dependent on the individual. And that is an idea which is absolutely refuted in the Bible. Instead, the Bible very clearly teaches that truth is not subjective, And it's not up to us to decide what truth is. Rather, truth is something that we can find, and we can find it in the Bible. 
The Apostle Paul, in his second epistle to the believers at Corinth, in chapter 13, states, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Examine yourselves, he says. Look at yourself, Paul instructs the believer. Look at yourself and check that you are in the faith. Make sure that your beliefs are the faith. Not make up your own faith, but rather that you are in the one faith. In another place, Paul writes, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And in fact, we have a precedent for ourselves in the Bible that we can look at of people that did this exact thing. It was a group of Jews in a place called Berea, in Macedonia, in northern Greece. And it was the Apostle Paul, whom we have just quoted from, that came to their city as he was going about his preaching on his second journey. And I'll put these verses up on the screen for us to all read together. And we're breaking into the record of events here a little bit, where Paul and his travelling companion Silas have been effectively chased out of the city of Thessalonica by an antagonistic group of Jews. Acts 17, verses 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who, coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And so we have this example of the Jews in Berea, whom scripture commends as more noble than those in Thessalonica, because they do two things. First of all, they received the word with readiness of mind or with eagerness. They are prepared to listen and have their own beliefs tested with a mind open to the words of God. And secondly, they searched the scriptures daily whether the things that were preached to them were so. Every day they were spending time validating what had been taught to them. Not just content to believe what they had been told, or on the other hand, conversely, not be open at all to hearing. They were dedicated to investing time into proving what was preached to them. Dedicated to investing time into the pursuit of truth. And we should also follow this example. And with a mind open to truth, put time into validating what is true by searching the scriptures. Don't take whatever I'm saying tonight as true, but rather let's together and privately by yourself validate it for yourself by searching the Bible and seeing if this stacks up. That is why tonight we hope to use many scriptural references to cement our thoughts on. Another quote I'd like us to think about is this one from Revelation, from a revelation or a message from Jesus Christ given to a man, John, for the followers of Christ. He says in Revelation chapter 22, this is Christ speaking, which is the final chapter of the Bible. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away the words of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. So if you're going to add or take away from the book of Revelation, or by extension add or take away from the Bible, then you'll receive the curses in it and lose your place in the reward in the book of life and in the holy city. And it's not our topic this evening to look at those things, but feel free to chat to us later about the book of life or the holy city 
or the hope of the Bible. Suffice to say that this is incredibly serious. It's a serious matter, a matter of life and death and of salvation, to be preaching things that are at odds with the teaching of the Bible or to be adding to the message of the Bible. So what have we just seen on the importance of testing all teaching, and particularly tonight, Mormon teaching, by the Bible? Well, there is one truth. We must examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. We must, like the Bereans, have a readiness of mind to listen to the Bible, and must also search and try and validate what we are told by the Scriptures, whether this is consistent. And we see that the Bible itself condemns those who add to and who take away from the Bible. So now let's move on to the group who identify themselves as the Latter-day Saints, or commonly known as the Mormons. Well, Mormons are obviously a religious group that embrace and hold on to concepts and aspects of Christianity, as well as revelations made by their founder, Joseph Smith. They belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, or colloquially known as the LDS. Well, whereabouts did it all begin? It's the year 1830, and the Mormon movement is just beginning. Its founder, Joseph Smith, has just begun publishing the Book of Mormon, of which, of course, there are hundreds of thousands of copies still available today. And Joseph Smith claims that this book, the Book of Mormon, is an English translation of golden plates. Smith claims that an angel had directed him to these golden plates, which were buried in the Hill Cumorah in Manchester, New York, in the United States. And this Book of Mormon, when translated, is set to contain the religious history of an ancient American civilization, which has been put together or compiled by an ancient prophet historian called Mormon, after whom, of course, the Book of Mormon is named. And so, on April the 6th, 1830, Joseph Smith founds the Church of Christ. Two years later, in 1832, Smith adds the account of a vision which he claims he had back in the 1820s. And this vision would come to be regarded by some Mormons as the most important event in human history outside the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From there, the early church grew westward as it proselytized across America, where it had a number of turbulent years as it clashed with local residents. In 1839, the Mormons purchased a small town, previously known as Commerce, on the banks of the Mississippi, and they renamed the area Nauvoo, Illinois. And they began to construct a temple. And it's from here that this group really grows rapidly, in part from local converts and in part from converts immigrating from Europe. And it's here that Smith introduced some of the well-known Mormon practices, or the former Mormon practices, such as sealing families together for eternity, plural marriage or polygamy, and the doctrines of eternal progression, also known as exaltation, that we will touch on again later in our time together. It's here that he publishes the story of his first vision, in which he claims God and Jesus Christ appeared to him when he was 14 years old. In the subsequent years, conflict grew between Mormons and the local residents including violent clashes, culminating when Smith was arrested and he and his brother killed by a mob on June the 26th, 27th, sorry, 1844. From there, the group grew, and in the 20th century began to regenerate back into the American mainstream. 
and then, in turn, to spread across the globe. After World War II, the church grew rapidly as missionaries went around the world, doubling in size every 15 to 20 years. And by the 1996, there were more Mormons outside the United States than within it. As of the end of 2019, the church was said to have 16 and a half million members worldwide. Today, Mormonism is broken up into four main groups. The first and the largest group is the Latter-day Saints, or the LDS, and they make up over 95% of Mormons. The second group are the fundamentalist Mormons, who broke from the LDS church over polygamy, and they differ mainly in their observance of plural marriage, which has now been rejected by the main LDS. There are also liberal Mormons, or progressive Mormons, who take a more open, interpretive approach to LDS teachings and scripture. And then there are also cultural Mormons, those who don't necessarily believe certain doctrines or practices, but they identify themselves as members of Mormon ethnic identity. And for the purposes of our class tonight, we'll be mainly focusing on Latter-day Saints as being the main and the largest group of Mormons today. Now, understanding the background of the Mormons, now let's have a quick look at some of their key beliefs that differentiate from mainstream Christianity. Probably the most widely known fact is that Mormons believe in a scriptural canon that is not exclusively the Bible. They believe in both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, as supposedly transcribed by Joseph Smith from the Golden Tablets dug up, as we touched on, and a couple of collections of revelations and writings by their founder, Joseph Smith, known as the Doctrine of the Covenants and the Doctrines the Doctrine and Covenants, sorry, and the Pearl of Great Price. The final source of revelations are pronouncements by the president. They have a president who they say is like unto Moses, a seer, a revelator, a translator, and a prophet, having, they claim, all the gifts of God which he bestows upon the head of the church. In essence, and very bluntly, the Mormons are uh, sorry, the present is to the Mormons what the Pope is to the Roman Catholics. They believe in a plan of salvation, as depicted on our slide here for us. They say that there is a pre-mortal existence where people are the literal spirit children of God. And this whole plan of salvation, this process you can see in front of you, is the process that shapes them people to become more like God. They profess that Jesus Christ came to conquer sin and death so that God's other children could return to earth. They teach that you then go to earth to receive a physical body and to progress through life in order to learn and to undergo trials to develop your character. They believe that every person that lived on earth will be resurrected and nearly all of them will be received up into various different kingdoms of glory, which are represented here on the screen as the celestial kingdom at the bottom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the highest place of all, the celestial kingdom. They profess that in the highest or the celestial kingdom, you dwell in coexistence with God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this one, this should be your aim. And this will be for those that have fully accepted the testimony of Jesus. And, note, for those that would have done so if they had the chance to. The terrestrial kingdom is where you would receive the presence of the Son. Those there would receive the presence of the Son, i.e. of Jesus Christ, but not of the Father. 
And those in this kingdom, generally speaking, are those that were otherwise good people, but were blinded by the craftinesses of men and not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. The third kingdom is the telestial, which is reserved for individuals who did not receive the gospel. And they will receive this glory and enter this heaven after being redeemed from spirit prison, or sometimes called hell. That's a very brief overview of some of the main beliefs of Mormonism. Now let's get into a little more detail on a few particular teachings and test them by the Bible. We obviously can't look at all doctrines tonight, but here are a number. And a lot of my content from tonight is based off this book here, which is Rested Scriptures by Ron Abel. And I would highly recommend having a read of that book. It's very interesting and a very beneficial read. And it covers a whole lot of different uh, biblical topics and uh, religions, uh, mainstream religions. So first of all, the belief that God is a progressive being. The following quote is from Joseph Smith, quoted here from the King Smollett Discourse, B.H. Roberts. What sort of being was God in the beginning? God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. Or this quote from Lorenzo Snow, quoted in Milton R. Hunter, Gospel Through the Ages. As man is, God was. As God is, man may become. Or Orson Hyde, Journal of Discourses, Volume 1. Remember that God, our Heavenly Father, was perhaps once a child and mortal like we are, and rose step by step in the scale of progress, in the school of advancement, has moved forward and overcome until he has arrived at the point where he is now. And it's pretty clear from these quotes, the Mormon belief that God is a changing progressive being that started such as we are now. Well then, let's turn to the Bible and let's see what the Bible says on this topic and whether or not these two are consistent. And what we'll find is that the teaching of the Bible clearly shows that God is unchanging by nature. The book of James in the Bible, James 1 verse 17, speaking of God. With whom is no variableness, nor shadow of turning. Or Malachi 3 and verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. So from this first example, we see that in this case, Mormon teaching does not stand up against biblical teaching, biblical testing. The Bible explicitly teaches that God is unchanging. But is it just this Mormon teaching or are there others as well? Well, what about the Mormon belief that there are heavens promised to the righteous? This is quoting from the Book of Mormon and Mosiah 2 verse 41. Those that keep the commandments of God, if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. So how does this belief of being received up into heaven hold when tested by the Bible? Well, once again, we find that this does not. The earth, we find, is promised to the faithful, not heaven. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth shall be given to the children of men. This taken from the Bible and in Psalm 115, verse 16. Or Daniel 7, verse 27. The kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints 
of the Most High. Or incredibly explicitly in Revelation 5 verse 10. Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. I think this incredibly explicitly teaches us that it is, uh, the future of uh, the righteous is on earth and not in heaven. Mormonism also teaches the observant, that the observance of the Sabbath is mandatory. The following excerpt, taken from Doctrines and Covenants, section 68, verse 29. And the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that although the keeping of the Sabbath day was required under the law of Moses in the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus Christ removed the need for adherence to it and the obligation to keep the Sabbath. Let no man therefore judge you, among other things, as you'll see in the quote, of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. Colossians 2 verse 16 and 17. Another core teaching of Mormonism is that the land of promise, Zion, is to be in Independence, Missouri, in the United States. The Mormon Doctrine and Covenants, section 57, verses 2 and 3. This is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. Behold, the place which is now called Independence is the center place. The Bible, on the other hand, teaches us that the site of Zion is to be in Jerusalem, in Israel. Matthew 5, verse 35, talking of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Or, the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Micah 4, verse 2. And clearly the Bible shows that the site of Zion is to be centered upon Jerusalem not in independence, Missouri. Another core belief is that all people will be resurrected to the judgment, including those that are non-responsible, as they had no knowledge of God and Jesus Christ during their lives, such as little children. This can be seen from the Doctrines and Covenants, section 45, verse 54, which reads, And then shall the heathen nations be redeemed, and they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection. Well, once again, this is at odds with what the Bible clearly teaches. The Bible teaches us that resurrection is only for the responsible, which we can gather from many different quotes, including the following, Romans 2 and verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law also perish without law. That is, those that have sinned and have not lived as God wanted them to, but had no knowledge of God, and did not live as God wanted them, would not be judged by the laws of God at the resurrection. And another couple of quotes that show this by inference is 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, where it speaks of others which have no hope, and Ephesians 2 verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. These people without God, the Bible teaches us, have no hope. They will not be resurrected to be judged, and they will not receive the promised blessings. And so having now briefly looked at a few Mormon teachings from outside the Bible and testing them with the Bible, let's now take a look at some teachings which are used to support Mormonism from within the Bible. 
And let's test them against themselves with the Bible. The first, and a very well-used one of these, is the prophecy of the union of the two sticks found in Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28. And if you have a Bible with you, and you can, turn up with me, Ezekiel chapter 37. There are going to be a few verses I read out here, so it will be best if you can follow along in your own Bible. Ezekiel chapter 37. And according to Mormon interpretation, these two sticks that join together represent the supposedly complementary accounts of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And this is used to give biblical backing and to validate the Book of Mormon. Now, just as a little bit of background for us, Ezekiel was written by the Hebrew prophet who carries the same name as the book. And he prophesied from Babylonian captivity. And I'll read this prophecy to you, but follow along if you, along if you can. Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thy hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick. And they shall be one in, thy, in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, and there shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And this passage is used by Mormons to predict the coming of the Book of Mormon. They interpret it that the stick of Judah refers to the Bible, and the stick of Joseph refers to the Book of Mormon. A Mormon expositor, Lee Grand Richards, who was himself one of the twelve apostles of the Mormon church, explains the Mormon belief like this. In ancient times, it was the custom to write on parchment and roll it into a stick. Roll it on a stick. Therefore, when this command was given, it was the equivalent of directing that two books or records should be kept. Further on, now granting that the Bible is the stick of Judah, who is the stick of Joseph? It would naturally be a record kept in another land, since Joseph was to be separate from his brethren. Could this promise be fulfilled in a more simple and perfect manner than it was through the coming forth of the Book of Mormon? God led a, bunch, a branch sorry, of the house of Joseph to America and commanded them to keep records all their days. Now the two records have been joined together, constituting a complete fulfillment of another great prophecy. And while at first, once again, it sounds plausible, the problem with this theory is that Ezekiel is not writing about scrolls here. He's writing on sticks. The stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah are sticks, not scrolls. And the Hebrew word, etz, and excuse my Hebrew pronunciation, is translated as tree, as wood, as gallows, among other things, but it's never translated as scroll. The Hebrew word for scroll is sefer. 
And what is more, an understanding of the historical context of this prophecy makes it very obvious about what is being talked about here. The sticks represent not the Bible and the Book of Mormon, but rather the two separate and distinct divisions of the nation of Israel that came about during the reign of King Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon. And this division came about right at the start of King Rehoboam's reign, when he angered many of the people following his coronation. And just make a note, if you can, of 1 Kings 12, verses 16 and 17. 1 Kings 12, verses 16 and 17. And that's where the record of the split occurs. And the nation of Israel, that was formerly united under his father Solomon, splits into the southern kingdom of Judah, that was form, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, which stayed loyal to King Rehoboam, and the northern kingdom of Israel, comprising of ten disgruntled tribes. And this northern kingdom of Israel has also been referred to in Scripture as the house of Joseph. For example, in Zechariah 10 and verse 6. Now these two sticks joining together here foretells the future restoration of these two divisions of Israel under one king. And this happens to be a major theme right the way throughout the Bible. In prophecy. And in fact, if this wasn't already clear from an understanding of the context, Ezekiel himself, in this very passage, gives us that exact interpretation. We see that right here in Ezekiel 37, verses 21 and 22. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I'll make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And note, on the mountains of Israel, not in independence. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And so the passage itself interprets the prophecy for us. And it's clearly not talking about the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And this is, bear in mind, probably the main argument used in Mormonism to validate the Book of Mormon from the Bible. And it's taken out of context and completely misunderstood. But surely there are other supports for the Book of Mormon and Mormon teaching from the Bible, you say. And there are, but they also similarly give in under scrutiny. One such is an interpretation of Revelation 20 and verse 12, which reads, And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And Joseph Smith and his followers have interpreted this reference to the multiple books to be the Mormon records of proxy baptisms and other rites and traditions recorded by the secretaries in Mormon temples. Now this justification relies on two assumptions. Firstly, that the living, pe that living people can do acts that carry eternal value for relatives that are dead in a points or a works-based system. The second assumption is that people who die in ignorance of the hope of the gospel have a hope of salvation through Mormon relatives of theirs, performing proxy baptisms on their behalf. And we've already addressed these assumptions earlier in our class together. And we've seen that the Bible clearly teaches that only those that had knowledge during their life would be resurrected and could have salvation. But what's more, the Bible does not present the judgment day as one that relies on secondary sources of information. When Jesus Christ judges, he does not rely on human witnesses. Even in his earthly ministry, he knew what was in man. In man. John 2 and verses 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, 
and needed not that any should testify or witness, as it means, of man, for he knew what was in man. It's prophesied of him, that is, of Christ, that the Spirit Uh, sorry, yep. Apologies. It's prophesied of Christ that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall not make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of our, his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Isaiah 11, verses 2 to 3. Jesus Christ, when he returns, will not need to judge by observing the records of earthly secretaries, no matter how fastidious their records have been. Well, perhaps the most well-publicised and controversial Mormon belief is that of polygamy or plural marriages. And while this is a belief which is not practised any longer by the Latter-day Saints, it is still practised by the fundamentalist Mormons. However, it does make a very compelling point about the inspiration of modern revelation in the church. The restoration of spirit powers is taught in the Book of Mormon. Now initially in 1830, when the Book of Mormon was first published, Mormons were condemned if they had more than one wife. Book of Mormon, Jacob 2 verse 24. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which things were abominable before me, saith the Lord. Or this passage from the Book of Mormon, Jacob 2 verse 27 and 29. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me, and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and the concubines he shall have none. Further on, wherefore, this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. So there was no room in early Mormon teaching for polygamy. However, in 1843, 13 years later, a supposed revelation through Joseph Smith contradicted these previous assertions. And this brought about a new and everlasting covenant being proclaimed, through which you were condemned if you did not have more than one wife. A complete 180 degree turnaround. For behold, I reveal unto you a new and an everlasting covenant. And if ye abide not that covenant, then ye are damned. For no one can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. And let mine handmaid, Emma Smith, that is Joseph's wife, receive all those wives that have been given unto my servant, Joseph Smith. And further on, and if he have ten virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery. That's from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verses 4, 52, and 62. Well, this excerpt from Joseph Smith's diary, October the 5th, 1843. I hold the keys of this power in the last days, for there is never but one on earth at a time on whom the power and its keys are conferred. And I have constantly said, no man shall have but one wife at a time unless the Lord directs otherwise. I.e., Joseph Smith claimed to have the authority to allow people to have multiple wives. However, this understandably came to be a great point of contention between Mormons and those outside the Mormon church. Insomuch that the American Congress passed a series of bills in 1887 prohibiting polygamy, known as the Edmunds-Tucker Act. 
In response to the external pressure, the head of the Mormon church, the president of the Mormon 12 apostles at the time, Wilford Woodruff, prayed and, feeling inspired, issued this new manifesto. Inasmuch as laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriages, I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. Doctrine and Covenants, official declaration. And after this declaration, polygamists were excommunicated so that by 1907, they could state that the church had submitted to the laws of the land on plural marriages. Now this claim that God commanded plural marriage, marriage through divine revelations to Joseph Smith can only be sustained if you are prepared to accept that God gave contradictory revelations within the space of 13 years and then retracted it again 44 years later in response to a man-made decision in the Supreme Court. This is, despite Joseph Smith, declaring it a new and everlasting covenant under claimed inspiration from God. The Bible confirms, as we have seen, that God changes not. His principles are the same forever. He is unchanging. And there are many, many more biblical quotes that show this fixed and unchanging nature of God, of which here are a selection. Micah 3 verse 6, and we've looked at this quote already tonight. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Or Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And in light of testing by these passages of Scripture, the validity of Mormon revelation is severely compromised. God does not change. His word stands forever. He does not change his truth in response to the commands of man, much less three contradictory times in a space of less than 60 years. And so, friends, we see that many Mormon teachings, especially from the texts and revelations outside the Bible, are disproven by the words of the Bible. These teachings do not hold up when they are tested. And in our short time tonight, we have considered a wide array of different teachings. We looked at the belief that God is a progressive being and found that the, from the Bible that he is unchanging in every aspect. We found that the earth, not the heavens, are promised to the righteous. That in contradiction to Mormon beliefs, the keeping of the Sabbath is not mandatory. We saw that Zion would be established in Jerusalem, not in the United States. That only those that had knowledge and therefore responsibility would be re resurrected and judged, not all the people that had lived. We looked at the prophecy of the two sticks rejoined in Ezekiel, purported to be speaking of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and found it to be referencing the future restoration of the two parts of Israel, the kingdoms of Judah and of Israel. We saw that the books of life opened in Revelation could not be the physical earthly records kept of secretaries, as Christ will not rely on human judgment when he comes. And we've seen through using the example of the teaching of polygamy that Mormon revelation cannot be from God, as he does not contradict himself, and his word does not change. But what do these findings mean for us? 
Well, I'd suggest, friends, that they have great implications for us. And we'll go back to that word that we used at the start of our time together. Truth. Search out for yourself the truth. Don't believe on face value what man tells you, but see if those things are so by a careful examination of the word of God. Writings and teachings of man independently from the Bible are not supported by the Bible. So search out for yourself the truth of the Bible from within the pages of Scripture. Look at the context of those quotes you read so you can understand the spirit and the backdrop against which they are set. Because the Bible does hold the key to life, the key to salvation. There is one truth and not many. We must examine ourselves then whether we are in the faith. We should be like the Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Amen.